this morning. I'd ask if you have your Bibles to turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. As we consider God's word for us this morning. Colossians chapter 1 and we'll be reading from verses 15 to 23 this morning. Such an important passage of scripture that Paul writes to the small little church in Colossae. It's very fitting because it has such big implications for us. Let me read for us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, And of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us bow our heads once more and ask the Lord to guide us through this text as we consider it this morning. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come before you and we ask and we acknowledge our need for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, for your wisdom, for your understanding. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would lead us in understanding this important text from your word. You have spoken, O Lord. Help us to hear. Open our ears. Open our hearts. Open our lives that we might know you. Our Heavenly Father, please guide us today. Direct us that we might see Jesus Christ, the exalted one. That he who is above all, is our Savior. It is He who is above all that is offered to us, that is the gospel, that we are given not stuff, we are given Christ. Oh, what a wonderful thing this is. 
Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Colossians is a book that is written to a small local church in this area. This area that has three main centers, and Colossae was one of them. But Colossae was different in that it was a place in decline. It had had its heyday. It had had its time where multiple people gathered, where there was commerce, where there was all sorts of culture that was involved. And now people were moving to other places, to bigger and better places. And now Colossae was on decline. And yet, there was a gathering of believers there in Colossae who had come to Jesus Christ and they have come and gathered to worship the one true God. And this tiny little church in Colossae, who were likely brought together by Epaphras, we read this just before our text today in verse 7, that they learned from Epaphras, the, serve, the beloved fellow servant, someone who is connected to Paul, they learned from Epaphras the way, the gospel. And this church had begun, but this church was under great pressure from within for heresies and different beliefs were starting to take root in this church and were brought up alongside the gospel of Jesus. You see, one of the dangerous One of the greatest dangers for the Christian church is is to bring up other things alongside of Jesus Christ and put them in the same place, to have the same importance. And so Paul, this great hero of the faith, who he himself had planted churches, who had gone on missionary journeys, who had contended for the faith faithfully, wrote to this small little church whom he had never met before. These people who he only knew through someone else, he wrote to them to encourage them and to speak to them and, and, and help them understand that Jesus Christ is the focus of the gospel, of the church, of our very lives. The Colossian church, as I've already said, was facing pressure, living in a tension. They had many things that were coming at them. They were dealing with a, a, an ideology, a philosophy of Gnosticism that was starting to infiltrate the church that would say that Jesus is not enough in and of himself. You must attain some level of higher understanding that is beyond the material. And then also they faced pressure from Judaism that was infiltrating the church that would say, Jesus Christ is not enough. You need to also live in a way that is obedient. You need to accumulate for yourselves good deeds and righteousness to make yourself good in the sight of God. This gave way to all sorts of 
ideologies, false ideologies that were infiltrating the church. They, there are some scholars that believe that angelology was actually one of, angelology rather, is one of the um, things that infiltrated the church, the worship of angels. That the Colossian church was starting to pick and choose who they were following, and Jesus was just an add-on. And I would say to us today that that can be very relevant for us as Christians today. The church has had to, through we see this in the scriptures multiple times, and we'll know this today, the church has had to defend against heresy, against false ideologies. It's no different today. Stephen Lawson, uh, a preacher from the United States, has said, often said this, where there is light... There will also be bugs. And that is very true for us who are called from darkness to light. Where there is light, there will also be bugs. And so Paul writes this short little letter to the church at Colossae to expound that Christ is the main thing. Christ is the main thing. He is the most essential and supreme part, and not just a part, but rather the fullness of the Christian life. Of what Christianity is all about. Jesus is the fullness. Jesus is the fullness. He's the fullness of not just a part but all of Christianity. And today we're going to see how that plays into creation. Creation. Now, I don't know about you, but those of you who have children, um, my children, one of the things they love is Lego. I, sometimes I feel like I have Lego coming out of me from all sides. It's in my socks. It's in my pockets because I'm picking it up constantly on the floor. My kids love to build, to modify, to destroy Lego. Because with Lego, it seems that anything is possible. However, one thing I've noticed in my own enjoyment of Lego is that there are limitations. You lose the instructions, and all of a sudden you can't build that thing you used to you saw on the cover of the box that made you want to buy that Lego. And even so, sometimes you're limited as to what kinds of blocks you have or what colors of blocks, what kind, how much money you might have to afford Lego, how much space you might have. And as we're moving, we're finding that. How much time you have. You see, Lego is a very creative thing, but it's also limited because it's restricted by who we are and in relation to our limited creation. With Lego, it seems that anything's, anything's possible except we are what puts limitations upon it. Why do I say this? Well, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae to speak of their creator who has no limitations. To speak of their savior. And in Colossians 1 verses 15 to 23 we see creation applied and related to 
Christ. Now, that seems odd. We don't often talk about creation related to Christ. But in Scripture, we see this as a priority. In ancient Near Eastern thought, you'll see, and even as we've sung in some of the Psalms today, and all throughout the Psalms, you'll see the psalmists seem to be fixed on this truth that God has created them. He's fashioned them. And that that is no small thing. It seems in our world today, people seem to uh, not make it a big deal whether God has created them or not. Oh, if God's created me, oh, that's fine, that's great, thanks for creating me. I'm going to go live my life now. Whereas that kind of worldview would not have passed back in biblical times where they would recognize that the God who has created them has a plan and a purpose for them. If God has created them, they will find they will only find who they truly are by knowing him. And so Paul begins by expounding in verses 15 to 17 the first creation and connecting it to Christ, connecting it to the subject of the beloved son of verses 13 to 14. And Paul erupts into poetry it seems. He begins by saying, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It seems poetic. Almost like a hymn. And some have, some have taken the stance that this was a hymn, much like Philippians chapter 2, a hymn that was sung in the early church. It's hymnic exaltation. It's inspired by worship, probably, to inspire worship. In music, for those of you who play music, you understand that there are crescendos in music, dynamics in music, when to get loud, when to get soft. Here we see a crescendo. A crescendo. Paul has begun his letter by explaining his thanks, his gratitude for the Colossian church, explaining who, he, who Paul is, introducing himself. But he only takes so long to explain about himself, and he gets right to Jesus, the crescendo of the letter. He's working his way up to show the greatness of Christ. And so there's three things we see about Jesus in relationship to everything that exists, the first creation in these first couple of verses. First of all, we see Christ's identity. Jesus is God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, not seen by human eyes. Now, it's interesting, that word image, what does that mean? Well, I would suggest to you today that that word image, most people can say, well, it's just an image of the invisible God. In some way, how that makes Jesus less than God. But rather, the word that's used is not the word to refer to likeness in the sense of it is an empty image or simply a representation, but rather, it's the word icon. 
in the Greek, which can be defined in this way, not a weakling or feeble copy of something, but it implies the illumination of its inner core and essence. Jesus Christ is not a weakling or feeble copy of God, but he implies who he is, is the illumination of the inner core and essence of who God is. In verse 19, we see, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is more than simply a paper cutout. This is... God in the flesh, even Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 explains this to us so well. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is who Christ is. He is God in the flesh. And this is why Paul is writing this, because in the Colossian heresy, Christ was just one somebody among other somebodies. He was not the somebody. I want you to think for a moment, as we've sung today, as we've considered, even in reading Isaiah chapter 40, of the greatness of the holiness of the magnitude of this God in whom we serve, And help us to see that this God, this God became flesh. Jesus Christ. The early church father Anselm has written that God, he defines God in this way. God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. God is something than which nothing greater can be can be thought. Indeed, the Westminster Confession says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being wisdom, power, goodness, justice, holiness, and truth. The wonder of this God in whom we serve became flesh in Jesus Christ. Christ makes the invisible God knowable. It's interesting that in verse 15, it talks about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's not speaking in a chronological way, but rather it's speaking of Christ as the firstborn in an authoritative way. It's speaking of rank. It's speaking of his priority and his, as we read later on, his preeminence. That he stands out far and above and above anything else. He is the firstborn of all creation. Not that he is a created being, but he is above and beyond and authoritative over all creation. Putting him on the same level as God. Indeed, communicating that Christ is God. And this is of ultimate importance because if we get it wrong here, we will get it wrong everywhere. If Christ is just simply one important person and not the important person, well, then we are in grave danger to our souls. So we see Christ's identity, and then secondly, we see Christ's activity. Jesus is God, and Jesus is also 
creator. Jesus is also creator. Everything was created by or in him. Verse 16. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You see the intricate involvement there of what has been made was made from nothing, nothing preexistent. And it was made in him. You can see Christ's involvement in creation. This was, creation wasn't contracted out. Creation involves the fullness of God, of who he is, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the thrice holy God, intricately involved in creation made from nothing, made by the word of his power and upheld by the word of his power as we read in Hebrews 1 verse 3. This should communicate to us that there's nothing untouched, there's nothing uncontrolled by him, whether it's realms as it's described here, whether it's understanding, whether it's power, through him, through Jesus, there is origin, there is value and for him, there is purpose and belonging. It is only in knowing Christ and understanding who he is that we then recognize who we are. And it is only by knowing that all things are for Christ that we might then see our purpose and our belonging. So we've seen Christ's identity and Christ's activity, and then we see Christ's authority, that Jesus is Lord. He is before all things, verse 17 says, and in him all things hold together. It's amazing when you consider even that science is discovering that even matter is made up of space. So how does all that space stay together? Paul here says, In him, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. Nothing exists apart from him. David Mathis has said, there is not anything in this world and in your life that does not relate to Jesus. We see this in Hebrews 1.3, as I've already said. He upholds everything by the word of his power. And so what we see here in Christ's relationship to the first creation, the creation of the world, we see that Christ is the eternal God, the supreme creator, and the sovereign Lord over creation. And as we read in John 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We see in this passage who Christ is that your existence here this morning brothers and sisters your existence here this morning is tied up in him you belong to him there's a lie that's going around in the world and we believed it since since the garden the lie that you are your own to define You are your own to apply, and you are your own to rule. That simply does not fit within a biblical worldview. 
That if we belong to Christ, he is the authority. He is the one who does the work in us. It's his identity that makes us who we are. He is the creator. We are the creation. And then, secondly, the second half of this passage relates who Christ is in the first creation to who he is, to who we are in the new creation. It goes from material to spiritual supremacy. It goes even deeper than mere materialism. It goes to a spiritual supremacy that Christ has. G.K. Beale says this so clearly about this passage, that Christ's supremacy over the first creation is a pattern for the new creation. Indeed, we read in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old is passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so we see here again some things about who Jesus is in relationship to his new creation, the church. Christ is the fullness of humanity. Jesus brings the fullness of humanity into the world. It says right there in Verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's speaking here of Christ's humanity and speaking here of his authority in the church. The Colossian church was asking this question, who is in charge? Who is in charge? And Paul answers this so clearly and definitively. Christ is the head of the body. The church is not headless, or it would be dead. The church does not have two heads, or three heads, or four heads, or it would be a monster. In order for the church to function properly, there is one head. And that head is Jesus Christ. And this is how he relates to the church, how he relates to the body He is the head. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn. Again, this word firstborn comes up, speaking again of rank, that he is the source of those who are called out. Even here, it could be portrayed as he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first of those who are called out, who he paved the way like Moses, leading the children of Israel out of slavery. Jesus Christ is the authoritative leader who leads his people out of slavery to sin into the promised land. He is the source of those called out, those assembled, the church, those who are resurrected. He is the firstborn of the dead. And you might wonder, okay, well, Jesus raised people from the dead. What's this? How does that fit? He wasn't the first person to be raised from the dead, but keep in mind that those people who were raised from the dead died again. What makes the ascension of Jesus Christ so powerful is that it proclaims and communicates to us, not only has Christ raised, been raised from the dead, but now he lives forevermore. He will not die. He will not pass away. He stands He stands at the right hand of God the Father. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. You see, the church 
Believe it or not, it was not man's idea. It was Christ's idea. It was God's idea. Christ is the fullness of humanity. He is the second Adam, the complete human. He is greater than us. And then Christ is also the fullness of divinity. He brings the fullness of God, verse 19, into the world. That word fullness is the Greek word pleroma, which means full measure, abundance, completion. Christ is not half or part. He is the fullness of God. Again, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the exact imprint of his nature. The Gnostics, who I referred to before, believed that the divine measure was divided emanations. That you can have a divine spark in you. And, you know, some, some angels possessed one part of divinity and others possessed other parts. Paul writes to say, Nope. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of it. Pleased to dwell in Christ. And think about that word dwell. It means to dwell permanently, not temporarily. It's not that Jesus became God for a season and then he gave that up. No, Jesus is truly, fully human Truly, fully God. Christ is the fullness of humanity. Christ is the fullness of divinity. And Christ is also the fullness of reconciliation. Jesus brings the fullness of peace into the world. Of everything reconciled to himself, verse 20 says. Notice this is not speaking of universalism. This is rather speaking of his supremacy It's not speaking salvifically, but rather his supremacy over all things. Paul says this elsewhere in Philippians 2, verses 10 to 11, that everything will be brought under Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every eye will see him. And see him as the Lord. And the truth is, we will either kneel in honor, in joy, in celebration of this Savior, or we will kneel before him in judgment. The truth is, as this passage states, not everything has the same purpose for themselves but in himself. It's an intense word that Christ, Paul uses to speak of Christ, that he's reconciling. There will be a reckoning of all creation. And so we as the church are called to declare and announce peace. Peace, notice, is not the absence of war or conflict, but the presence of that which holds together. In the War of 1812 in Fort Bowyer in Alabama, about a short time after the end of that war was announced, there was a battle in Fort Bowyer, Alabama. A battle after peace was declared. News had just not reached that area of the United States at that time. 
And I think that's a very fitting example for us as the church that we must recognize that peace has been declared through Jesus Christ and yet in this world where it has set itself against God, against Him, we are called to be ambassadors to go and declare the peace that Christ has brought by the blood of His cross. Though As we're going to look tonight, the rulers of the earth set themselves against God. We as the church are called to go and declare peace. That the good news might might go before us. And so here we see Christ as the true Adam, the mighty God, and the atoning sacrifice for sin. Here's what I've attempted to do this morning and what all preaching should do. It should exalt Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, the supremacy of Christ is the basis for gospel fullness. The last section of of Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 23, verses 21 to 23, declares who these people were at Colossae, compares them with this wonderful Savior, this mighty God, this this Jesus Christ, this Messiah. Paul writes, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds and now have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Don't you see? Without Christ, without Christ we are nothing. Oh, my prayer for you today is that you would exalt Christ, that you'd recognize in your gathering here this morning, we are here because of who Christ is, what he's done, and what that has been brought to us. There is, through sin, you might be alienated, you might be against God, but now Christ has saved you. Christ is supreme over all things. Don't you see our crescendo is not in ourselves. It's in him. It's in Christ. You see, only Christ is the one who has made you, created you, holds you together, and now gives you life. Just as you need Christ in everyday life or existence, you need Christ as your fullness. So I ask you today, where is your fullness? I'll leave you, because my time is over, I will leave you with this this very powerful word from the Puritan John Flavel. He has said this concerning this passage. He has said, he embraces, that is Christ, embraces all things that are lovely, He seals up the sum of all loveliness, things that shine as single stars with a particular glory, all meet in Christ as a glorious constellation. Colossians 1.19 says, It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Cast your eyes among all created beings. Survey the universe. You will observe strength in one, beauty in a second, faithfulness in a third, wisdom in fourth, but you shall find none excelling in them all as Christ does. Bread has one quality. Water, another. Raiment, that is clothing, another. Another. And medicine, another. 
but none has them all in itself as Christ does. He is bread to the hungry. He is water to the thirsty. He's a garment to the naked. He is healing to the wounded. And whatever a soul can desire is found in him. Brothers and sisters today, look to Christ. For all that you need is found in him. You may have noticed that the primary word in this passage here today is the word all. You will see it throughout the whole passage, how often the word all is used in reference to Christ. Your all is not found in yourselves. It is found in him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, please give us the grace to receive this word, to, to acknowledge that our all in all is not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not in the things of this world that are fleeting, but it is in Christ. So Father, Christ be all. Be all in all for us that he might be exalted above all things and in our lives and in his church, we pray in Jesus' name.